Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 30, and it was recorded on Thursday, September the 5th, 2019. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. This is our ninth episode of 2019. We were joined by Doug Rankmore, CEO of the Kelowna General Hospital Foundation, Kathy Mann, Principal at Kathy Mann & Associates, Sharon Avery, CEO of the Toronto Foundation, and Andrea McManus, a partner at Vitreo Group. Our topic, Come Together, Collaboration in the Nonprofit Sector, Why Coming Together Makes Sense and When It Doesn't. The word collaboration covers a lot of ground. It has more than a few interpretations and even more than a few implementations. All of our guests have experience with collaboration. Join us in conversation as they share their thoughts and ideas on what it means to work together. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to episode 30 of Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. This is our ninth episode of 2019. Our topic today, come together, collaboration in the nonprofit sector, why coming together makes sense and when it doesn't. We have four amazing Canadian nonprofit leaders with us today. I'm excited to be here. They're excited to be here. Let's get started. Joining us from Toronto, we have Kathy Mann. Kathy is no stranger to our podcast or to podcasting. This is Kathy's third visit with us. She first Yay. joined us back in season one. I know it's awesome. On it episode is. eight, we, we spoke about leadership in the profession. Joining her on that episode were Scott Dexheimer, Beth Ann Locke, and Brad Jacobs. Kathy again joined us in season two for our episode on research. Kathy, we're always thrilled to have, have you with us. Welcome back. Well, thank you for continuing to invite me. <laughs> Kathy, since we last had you on the podcast, you started your own very successful podcast. If the internet isn't lying, you've done 11 episodes. Is that true? That's right. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Okay. So before we get to today's topic, can you share with us what inspired you to start your podcast and what you have learned? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the podcast is called It Doesn't Hurt to Ask. And really what we wanted to explore was... Um, uh, people who are doing things differently in philanthropy. So the, the theme is, is shift disturbers in philanthropy. And I've had amazing conversations with people who really are doing things a little bit differently than perhaps we were trained when we started uh, fundraising 20 or 30 years ago. And so I've spoken with everybody from, you know, folks who, are using technology to do things differently. I spoke with Jason Shim at Pathways, who is the first organization to accept a Bitcoin donation, um, to Marina Goger at Canada Helps, who just is using technology in a way to uh, even the playing field for smaller organizations that don't have access to, to technology, to, in fact, uh, Sharon Avery, who we spoke uh, at great length about um, some collaborative fundraising that she's doing at, at Toronto Foundation. And so I think what I've learned is that uh, philanthropy is uh, shifting, um, times are changing, and there are some amazing 
things that uh, we as a sector are doing to um, uh, to move philanthropy in slightly different directions than where we came from. Well, that's awesome, Kathy. Thank you for 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 that, for sharing that with us, and for also starting a podcast. It's a really great podcast. I highly recommend that you subscribe and listen to it. So, thank you. Well, next, thanks, thanks for talking. <laughs> yeah, and actually, I think Sharon was on your first episode, wasn't she? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Also joining us from Toronto, nice segue. We have Sharon Avery. Sharon is the president and CEO of the Toronto Foundation, and this is her first visit to our podcast, but you've been on a number of podcasts. Sharon, welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy. Thanks for having me. Sharon, we're going to hear more about your thoughts on collaboration later in the program. Um, just before we go there, though, I see that you, you might just share a bit of the broadcasting bug that both Kathy and I have. From my research, I see that you were a proud Ryerson alum. And when you were there, you took radio and television arts. I know you've been on Kathy's podcast and a few others. My question is this. When are you starting your own podcast? <laughs> what a great first question. It, it, it is, <laughs> you know, and it's funny because um, uh, it, it has been the best degree I could ever have to prepare me for fundraising. I've actually recruited uh, probably seven um, alumnus from RTA into fundraising over the years um, because, you know, being able to communicate effectively, being able, being comfortable, um, writing the deadline, uh, you know, news, writing news and writing case for support aren't that much different. And so um, it's been, it, it really is an asset. Um, and of course, uh, radio is always my favorite part of broadcasting. So podcasting is something I've, I've toyed with, but, um, but it, it, you guys invest so much time and energy into it. And I find this job is just got me going so many directions. I think it's still out in my future. So I love the opportunity to participate, um, in, in a podcast and, and, in, in any kind of form of communications, but I, I'm not ready to start my own yet, but yet being with a capital Y. <laughs> well, maybe the Toronto Foundation will start one, and you can you can guest guest host or something. Well, I know I don't know if, if Martin is with us uh, the next time I'm seeing you, Vincent. But um, at the Edmonton Community Foundation has a brilliant podcast called uh, Well Endowed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, that it is it is called that, and it's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I might I might have to franchise. I might have to license it from the Edmonton Community Foundation and and start the Toronto version of it. Well, that that's awesome. Um, you know, uh, up up in Edmonton, also at the there's a, a college there called Northwest College, and the CEO is a woman named Jody Abbott, who's been on our, our podcast. And you know, uh, uh, a college and university um, presence, like everybody, is, is super busy. But she does, I think, a monthly podcast on leadership with the head of the garrison so like the the colonel in charge of the Edmonton garrison um and so they do a a, a super interesting podcast to listen to but um this isn't a podcast about podcasts so we'll move on so thank you about that (laughs) share now now joining us from the other end of the country from beautiful Kelowna we have Doug Rankmore Doug is the CEO at the Kelowna General Hospital Foundation and like Sharon this is his first visit to our podcast welcome Doug Thank you. It's great to be here. Doug, I first heard you speak when you were a guest on KCI's, another excellent podcast called The Ask. 
It was a live taping at the AHP conference in Ottawa two years ago. I was very impressed with the session, and all of you on the panel did a great job. Doug, I read in your bio that you moved from Ontario to the Okanagan Valley by accident, and uh, you said in your bio that that's a story for another time. Well, curious minds want to know, what was the accident that brought you to Kelowna? <laughs> Probably like many other people arriving here. Uh, no, actually, um, after 10 years in Toronto, uh, my wife and I decided to venture west. We were headed for Vancouver for uh, other opportunities. Uh, this is in 1991 and coming through the Okanagan, uh, which I had been to a number of times before and just absolutely loved, our car broke down. And so while we were waiting for our car to be fixed, uh, we kind of said to each other, really, what are we looking for? Because this is amazing. And, uh, yeah, that was, uh, 1991. So we've been here a little while and it's an absolutely beautiful place and has been discovered by a few other people from Toronto as well, actually. <laughs> well, that's, that's a great story. Um, and it also tells us a little bit about your decision making processes, uh, which I want to hear more. <laughs> yeah, opportunistic. Yeah, it. absolutely. It's actually strategic opportunism. Oh, okay, good. I'm glad that we got that sorted out. <laughs> Finally, joining us from right here in Calgary, we have my business partner, Andrew McManus. This is Andrea's sixth visit to the show. Yes, that is the record by a, a couple of shows. I'm pretty sure she'll want me to give her a rest after this. Um, for those of you who might not know, Andrea grew up in PEI and regularly spends her summers working and relaxing on that beautiful island. And in fact, just got back to Calgary a few days ago. So welcome back to the show and welcome home, Andrea. Thank you. Thank you. Andrea, over the summer, um, while you were kicking back, drinking whatever you drink in PEI, uh, you also were working with folks in Ottawa and you were recently appointed to the Canada Revenue Agency's Advisory Committee on the Charitable Sector. So like all good government committees, nice long handle. Uh, it's quite the group and it's quite the mandate. So first, congratulations. And second, can you tell us a little bit more about this committee? Oh, yeah, I, uh, I'm very uh, honored and, and uh, I was actually quite surprised to um, be, uh, I, if, I would, if, if I was willing to be appointed, I guess is the right word. Uh, I'm serving a three-year term and uh, this advisory committee comes out of the work of uh, several uh, previous um, uh, committees, uh, both out of Parliament and, and out of the Senate. And basically, um, we'll be working with the Government of Canada um, to strengthen the relationship between government and the uh, charitable sector. And so the, the committee has some funding in place. Uh, we have uh, um, uh, a secretariat that will support us. Uh, we've only had one introductory uh, phone meeting uh, so far. Um, but we're looking at our first get-together in Ottawa um, later this fall. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm really excited about um, it looks like we have a pretty clear mandate on, on issues um, that we might want to deal with. So that's our first priority is what are we going to look at. Um, but I'm pretty excited about the work that we're going to be able to do on behalf of the sector. And, of course, on behalf of um, of uh all of the professions, such as fundraising, that are, are part that make up the sector. So, yeah, I'm re really excited. 
Well, congratulations again. I'm sure the, uh, all of us feel exactly the same way in, in offering that up. Thank you. So uh, th- 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 thank you for joining us. Um, okay, let's get started. Thank you all for, for joining us on this, our 30th podcast. Our topic, uh, again, is come together, collaboration in the nonprofit sector, why coming together makes sense and, and when it when it doesn't. Collaboration, it's a big word, and it has more than a few interpretations. Even the dictionary definition is polarized. Uh, you can be a collaborator by working with someone to produce or create something, like a work of art or a new organization. You can also be a collaborator by working traitorously with the enemy. Uh, the idea of working with others for what we hope will be something good is strong in the nonprofit sector, or at least the idea is strong. Thanks for laughing at that, Doug. Um, uh, but, but do the actions behind the idea – well, back to this. The idea of working with others for what we hope will be something good is strong in the nonprofit sector, or at least the idea is strong. But do the actions behind the idea speak just as strongly? Is collaboration actually occurring? Or is it being trotted out as a word that helps with grant applications and not much else? Kathy, I want to kick it off with you. Is collaboration real? When does it make sense? And when doesn't it? Mm, wow. Uh, yeah, those, so- are so- so- those are yeah, tiny questions. Those are tiny questions. Just a so- so- softball lob to you, Kathy. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> well, you know, I started my fundraising practice uh, a dozen years ago, and one of the things that I really wanted to do was to help organizations, especially organizations in the social change sector, figure out how to collaborate around fundraising because organizations are collaborating left, right, and center when it comes to program delivery and mission mission delivery. And um, and and my experience was that it was harder to figure out how to collaborate when it came to fundraising. And um, I had one really great opportunity to help uh, two organizations collaborate. I was thrilled. And then um, actually one of the organizations got defunded, so that that stopped happening altogether. And then it was many years later before I found a way um, for collaboration to work in fundraising. And, and to be fair, I knew that there were some uh, examples of some collaboration in arts fundraising that had had, you know, some some success. But I wasn't really seeing it happen uh, until I started working with an organization called East Scarborough Storefront, which works in the world of, of collective impact. And I began to see the opportunity for collaboration around fundraising because this was an organization that, as part of mission delivery, was working with dozens and dozens of organizations. And I thought, okay, here's a place to... Um, uh, to anchor some uh, some collaborative fundraising. Uh, ten years later, we're still talking about uh, how that how that works. So um, I think it does take a lot of time to you know figure out how to uh, how to collaborate. Um, and the experiences that I've seen that I've been involved with and seen, and one of them was with with Andrea in the Resolve campaign. I was doing my master's a few years ago and did some research around um, collaborative fundraising and uh, and studied uh, Re- Resolve was one of the case studies, and uh, and now I'm working with Sharon on a collaborative uh, initiative that I'm sure she'll talk about. And one of the things that um, I think is really important for anybody who wants to uh, go down this road is to to um, create and set aside far more time than you ever anticipated for <laughs> developing the groundwork so that the collaboration can succeed. All right. So uh, you saw lots of collaboration in the sector around mission and a program delivery, but around fundraising a little harder. 
And apparently it's just like getting a contracting job. You need twice as much time and I'm not sure how much more money. <laughs> Who wants yeah. to weigh in on that? I'll weigh in. I'll weigh in on that because um, I concur exactly with what uh, you know, Kathy's point. Um, I think two things uh, come to mind. One is herding cats, and the other is the devils in the details. And, and those, you know, those are um, you know phrases that we use frequently, but they're they're so true um, in order to make collaboration work. And um, failed collaboration can be disastrous. Uh, Kathy mentioned the Resolve campaign. Um, if I just so just as a bit of background, um, the Resolve campaign uh, was a 120 million dollar capital campaign for affordable housing in Calgary that ran over a seven year period. There were nine agencies involved in that uh, collaboration, um, nine very different agencies covering everything from addictions to mental health to uh, accessibility to high risk uh, to um, offenders coming out of the um, penal system um, and um, it, it, very different organizations and also a, a wide variety of uh, fundraising experience in those organizations. In fact, most of them had none. But when I first got involved with um, what became Resolve, it was in my pre-Vitreo days, and uh, we were hired by the Calgary Foundation, sorry, not the Calgary Foundation, the Calgary Homeless Foundation, um, to raise some money against the 10-year plan to end homelessness in Calgary. And that just turned out to be a, a lot of problems and obstacles in the way of that. Um, it was it was in 2010. It was uh, we we're just coming out of the 2008-9 um, sort of global or North American recession, uh, and a lot of concern about how much money would need to be raised, um, particularly since the homeless foundation itself at that time had a sunset clause on its work. Um, but we picked up these uh, comments and, and concerns and also ideas about maybe some of these organizations that are involved in homelessness, which are about 140 or 150 or so in the city, about them working together. And so we went back to the Homeless Foundation and, and pitched the idea of doing a, a feasibility study into a collaborative initiative. And four of the participating organizations came together on that. And we conducted that study, and I often refer to it as being uh, letting the genie out of the bottle because it was so uh, so well received by potential donors and campaign leaders that it would have begged questions. Well, why didn't you go down that route? We, we like that idea. Uh, we like one organization coming to us, not 140. Um, I also, at the time, uh, I have a pretty wide network, mostly through my AFP association in North America, and I cast my net far and wide to try to find previous uh, other collaborative initi initiatives that we could learn from. And pretty much all I got, I, there was one previous one in Calgary, but, but pretty much what I heard was, oh, I don't know anything, but if you find anything or if you do anything, can you mm -hmm. let us know? And uh, so we started from scratch, and uh, we we were the consultant. Uh, I was the consultant on record for seven years on that campaign. Um, it was an amazing experience. There are definitely things uh, I think that I and I think the partners that were involved would, would do differently, um, but it really resonated with donors, and I think that um, 
collaboration. I think there needs to be more collaboration. Uh, it's not for everybody, and there's there's varying degrees of collaboration. But donors love it, and donors, most of all, donors understand that systemic change doesn't happen through one organization. That to make real change in society and to really shift the needle on societal issues, you need to work with across multiple agencies and across multiple sectors. And I think, you know, we're seeing that in the way um, that the really big donors of today give. But I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for um, ch charitable organizations to capitalize on this. And it's one of the big shifts that I see in fundraising and philanthropy. So can I yeah. jump in there, Andrea? Um, yeah. And Vincent, I guess this is your, your show, but. Uh, no, 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 no. It's your show. I'm it's just going to duplicate the <laughs> opportunity. Well, I guess um, it's interesting. Uh, I, I totally uh, love that example. And um, it is sad that it is unique. But I think that one of the things we need to call out um, in terms of what are the barriers to this are a couple of things that I talk about all the time. Um, now that I have made this weird shift from 20 years of fundraising to leading a community foundation, um, I've had this, I'm in this new privileged space of not needing to raise money anymore. And it, 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 it's given me a perspective on the sector I hadn't had um, in the trenches, so to speak, for the last 20 years. And so what I talk about a lot is the inequality or the inequity within the sector itself in terms of that fundraising skill set and um, the mm -hmm. funding that goes needs to go behind it. And the fact that um, uh, we have, uh, uh, what, 66% of all donations in Canada support only 1% of the charities. And so your point, yeah. Andrea, that donors love this, um, they love it when they have the door opener, but at the moment, most of the biggest philanthropists in the country are only being offered um, a one-relationship uh, dynamic with their alma mater, with their local um, uh, uh, hospital, with uh, their private schools. Um, and it really concerns me that we professionalize fundraising to such extent that we have enormous gaps between the big institutions and the and the grassroots orgs tackling the the really messy problems, and mm -hmm. so this is why I feel so strongly that we need more collaboration and we need to create structures that allow small orgs to get in. The other piece I would just put on the table to be bantered around is a theory that I have um, that I think our boards of directors can be problematic in this space. Um, that what? I think that, what? <laughs> <laughs> That, that we have, and I have many wonderful, generous private sector leaders on my board, but they tend to enter the sector with a very competitive, a very, um, a desire to be helpful in giving CEOs like me the direction to differentiate themselves and that collaboration is problematic. And I really think this is one of those sort of elephants in the room no one wants to talk about, but these are all often our donors as well, and they're, they have very sort of definite sense of what traditional um, 
fundraising and philanthropy needs to look like, and it doesn't look like collaboration. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have as a sector to break down um, the willingness of boards to allow their organizations to consider these new models. I think okay. that's what we've on the table. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for putting it on the table, and I do want to encourage conversation. Um, uh, but I want to give, uh, first of all, uh, thanks for all being really light and, and very easy at this <laughs> early part of the podcast with kind of not very deep topics. Um, over to you, Doug, if you can maybe weigh in with something that's got some depth. Um, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, I've left, we've left, we've left Doug with nothing. Um, but Doug, please take the floor. Actually, there's some great segues from uh, the information provided, some some great examples. You know, we were actually able to benefit from, uh, you know, what was going on in Calgary with Resolve and, and understand a few more things. When we went into one of the collaborative projects that we did, we actually partnered with a branch of the Canadian Mental Health Association to launch a brand new uh, strategy and uh, treatment service for um, youth and families facing mental illness. And uh, it was an initiative that um, the franchise package was quite um, underwhelming for the project. And so we were actually approached by CMHA to partner with them on this. And there's, we have a lot to say about that, but just taking the, the, the recent segue around our board, we certainly had, you know, our board certainly had misgivings going into it. Much of what was expressed, you know, how, how the the issues around our identity and and sharing our brand and those kinds of things. But we've we've had such a, a tremendous success out of it in so many ways. Our board has now uh, included that as a mandate, a key initiative in our strategic plan going forward to um, remain open to and seek these type of opportunities for collaboration. In the community, ours was a, a relatively small project. It was two million dollars. We raised it over seven months. It was it was very quick, but it was uh, it was I would say nothing but positive uh, from our perspective. There certainly are those walls that exist, and I think they exist in the majority in healthcare, uh, healthcare philanthropy in our foundation, in our hospital. It can tend to get very protective. Um, you know, university incursions in similar research endeavors, those kinds of things. But I think once you uh, take a step back and you understand, as was mentioned before, that uh, this is something that donors are thirsting for. And it was one of the uh, tremendous pieces of feedback that we got was, thank you for not making all these agencies the, the uh, come to us individually looking for support because what we uh, supported was actually a collective impact project sponsored by the Canadian Mental Health Association, which had about 40 agencies participating in the overall project. So they provided a lead for those agencies. But the feedback from donors was was tremendous. It's, it's about time. We've got too many uh, people asking. Uh, so it, it was nearly totally positive for us. I think one of the other things is that there's really uh, increased expectations, particularly on social and health agencies, providing services, um, and the smaller, the greater the expectations, um, to fundraise and to match whatever government is providing. I know the, the $1 worth of funding for $2 worth of service is a tremendous pressure out there for people. And so um, you're absolutely right. The smaller agencies just simply don't have the bandwidth, the knowledge, the expertise, the machine to be able to really um, do a good job, particularly uh, in donor experience, 
to to uh, really take those kinds of projects on. Um, and I think it's um, an absolutely fantastic two-way street because it was a great acquisition strategy for us. Like I say, there was just almost nothing that wasn't positive. That's awesome. Now, thank you for, for segueing there, uh, Doug. And I, I want to now open it up a bit because Sharon put uh, a theory on the table uh, uh, around the fact that uh, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but I heard donors love this. Boards of directors are hesitant about this or maybe even more than hesitant. But let's let's talk about that a little bit. Kathy, earlier you were going to weigh in. Who, who wants to start? Go ahead. Yeah, if I may. Um, so I think that uh, one of the – so hopefully Sharon will have a chance to, to explain the Trust Collective a little bit, but um, it, it is a, a collaboration uh, that the Toronto Foundation has led, and there are 17 um, agencies that are part of it, most of whom are – social change organizations and who would fall into the category of groups that have, uh, there's a really varying degree of uh, fundraising, fundraising experience among the 17 organizations. Um, and I, I think that one of the, the pieces of feedback that we've heard from some of them is, is that uh, um, they struggle to sell it to their board in some cases and uh, uh for for the very reason that uh, uh that Sharon talked about and so one of the things that i think is um is an interesting principle if you're wanting to get into um a collaborative uh initiative around fundraising is this notion of the co- a coalition of the willing and um and it, but it's not so simple because I would say that uh, of the people who are involved in the uh, in the trust collective, the the fundraising staff are um, among that coalition of the willing. Uh, but they have many layers of uh, folks within their organization that they have to bring along, and uh, and 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 that's a challenge. So you know, I'm interested, Sharon, to hear yours and Angie's and Doug's experience about how um, how you bring some of those board members along who who have a different lens on the world because of their corporate um, their their corporate life experience. And if I can jump in, I'll just give you the the, the quick explanation of this campaign um, because it really is, I think, certainly in my own um, career, the first time I've really tried to lead something so um, uh, broad and collaborative. And I, with you, Andrea, like the devil's in the details is for certain. Um, and me not being a highly detailed person um, has been one of the trickiest parts in executing this campaign. But in essence, what we wanted to do is um, I'm big on donor education. I think um, people need to start with the issues that we're facing as a, as a country, as a community, um, and then and then go to the causes and the, and the organizations. And so wanted to create a learning journey for a group of women philanthropists on giving with a gender lens, but wanted to do it fundamentally differently. And so actually decided um, we wanted to be really aggressive in our goals and um, how could we quickly gather a group of women philanthropists? Well, I said to my team, I, like, there's three of us that actually um, do any interaction with donors here. Uh, we need a bigger, we need an army of, of solicitation. How can we grow our team? And, and, and I said, well, why don't we try and create a collaborative fundraising environment? And why don't we invite a bunch of our grantees to join us and we'll make it um, financially uh, positive for them to do that? 
So we actually went out to 70 of our past grantees of the sort of last three years. And, and, and to, um, Kathy's point about the a coalition of the willing, I didn't even care if they like were solely focused on women as a, as an organization. I was more, it was more important to me that they were open to the model of collaborative fundraising first. And we all in the sector know that, you know, poverty disproportionately affects women. Any social change organization in this space is prioritizing women. They're over, they're over, um, uh, servicing women anyway. And so anyone I'm giving to through the community foundation or through Toronto foundation is likely, um, servicing women anyway. And so we went to 70 of them to get 17 to say yes. And it really was so many of those that said no. It wasn't that the CEO or ED didn't want to do it. It was that their board wasn't comfortable. And and I do think the scarcity of funding that's been typically available to these folks um, is part of what makes the boards more conservative. This isn't me um, being critical. It's that we have to have these conversations more openly. We need to um, get them bought into the idea that donors love this. And so the 17 that bought in are all very similarly minded leaders. They're more entrepreneurial. They are more open to risk. Um, and, uh, and so we've also learned that the profile of the kind of leader that collaborates is different. Um, and, uh, and it's been, it's, it, you know, we're only partway through this journey, uh, and we're still learning every day, but it has definitely taken longer uh, to execute this campaign than any campaign I've ever done, but it's been worth it. And to see the progress these orgs are making and the learning they're doing with each other. Um, I, I'll say one last thing, which is, um, one of our groups is the Jewish Community Center um, at Bay uh, Bloor and Spadina. If anyone out there knows Toronto, it's it's uh, in I know one, it well. I know right? it well. It's awesome. Right near the annex, and isn't it? It is near the annex. And what she said is, up until joining this campaign, I was just the head of this community center at the corner of Lawrence Spadina, and I was all alone. And she said, I don't feel alone anymore. And I think that coming out because I come out of UNICEF and sick kids. Like I have been in these big institutions. You don't feel alone very often in those big institutions when you've got, you know, a hundred colleagues fundraising together. Um, but you forget that these small agencies really struggle and the collaboration not only um, fosters fundraising for them, it fosters their leadership development. Oh, that's, that's absolutely a critical point. Yeah. So that's awesome. I, I, Go ahead, Andrea. We didn't really have a, a board issue so much with the Resolve campaign. Um, we very much took from the from the get go a float the boat model because um, we had a number of the partners who had never really done any fundraising, and so they uh, and so leadership development and capacity building was were both core pieces of um, the Resolve campaign for the partner agencies. And in fact, um, five of those agencies have gone on to form a new foundation and plan to continue on funding for capital purposes um, right. through that. So that's a really, really nice legacy. But just a, a bit of a um, another way to, to, to look at this, or, or another factor to consider, um, 
I also think that fundraisers need to be open to this. And and about halfway through the Resolve campaign, I was contacted by a colleague in the in the United States, and a big university, a big cancer center, big healthcare. They were all looking at doing something um, collaborative, and so I just spent some time on the phone with them, going over Resolve and what our experience was. And I never really heard from um, them again, but ran into uh, their VP at a conference and, and asked what had happened to it. And it really fell down uh, from the fundraisers because <laughs> the fundraisers couldn't wrap their heads around who would get credit for a gift in order to meet their metrics. And uh, <laughs> oh my God. I, I found that very oh. disappointing, you know, that, that, that they couldn't see, so they couldn't, you know, push it past that. Um, so maybe from my resolve perspective, it was a good thing that there was so little fundraising experience with most of the partners. But, but uh, you know, I think that that's this is something that, Gosh, if fundraisers can't float, you know, adopt a float the boat and adopt an abundance versus scarcity model, then, um, you know, maybe fundraisers have a role to play in leading the boards as well onto this and, and understanding what the, what the potential, huge potential benefits are. So I'm vibrating here. Can I jump in? Go ahead. Kathy, I love it when you vibrate. Please jump in. (laughs) Um, so, you know, I work primarily with social change organizations, so a lot of the the charities that uh, um, that we're talking about are the small charities that i uh, th- that I work with and for years, I would go to um, larger organizations or if I happened to be working with an organization that was somewhat larger, and I would say to them let's figure out how to engage groups that do similar kind of work and let's come up with a solution that's a win-win um, and uh, and make it easy for them to engage. So with one organization, they were hosting a, a walk uh, kind of event and I said, you have a whole host of organizations that um, could be fundraising, uh, participating in your walk. Let's figure out what the revenue sharing for- model is and, you know, now Scotiabank Marathon does that brilliantly, right? Um, and they could not, they couldn't understand what was in it for them. And I was like, well, what's in it for you? Is you're going to get way more people at your event? You're going to raise more money? Um, and so I think part of it is the, the, the way that we um, ask fundraisers to uh, measure their performance. Um, and what's, what's so lovely about what um, Sharon is doing at the Toronto Foundation is that uh, the structure is such that while pieces of it, the mechanics of it can be a little bit complicated, it's really easy. It's a win-win for everybody who's involved. And so I think part of it is developing a structure that works for everybody. Part of it is making um, uh, the, the measurement um uh, make sense, and uh, and we don't work in a in a sector right now um, that makes it easy for us to to collaborate in fundraising. And so I'm I'm delighted that you're shining a light on this today, Vince, so that we can start to talk about the successes that we've had, so that when people hear this, maybe they'll be sending you information, so that you can begin to curate that. Because um, I can tell you that um, you know I because of my work with. East Scarborough storefront and and the the world of collective impact. I've been getting a whole bunch of phone calls um, and having phone calls with groups that are working in collab- 
collective impact from the fundraisers saying, how do you fundraise for collective impact organizations? And I don't, you know, I don't have all the answers, but those conversations are starting to happen and, and I'm just delighted that we're talking about it more because I think it requires some pretty significant foundational shifts within uh, how we do our work. Yeah, one of the things that we're talking about here as well is uh, some of these preconditions to make this successful. And I know that that really troubles people and it does trouble boards sometimes. Um, I've been working with boards um, almost 35 years, probably 100 boards. And one of the things that I've really learned is you can't expect directors to know what you know. So when you go, it's not just a presentation to the board. Whenever I try and introduce something, um, you know, a new project or certainly uh, something that is asking directors to think in a non-traditional way, um, I bring it to them at least three times before any decision-making occurs. I, I uh, try and um, bring a presenter from another perspective. Um, one of the other things that I strongly recommend in any collaborative, collaborative projects is not just for the CEO to do the presentation of the board, let's go, but I actually recommend getting the boards together, having the chairs meet together, having joint meetings around these kinds of things with both the boards, because you really then start to break down some of those us and them barriers. Um, if they can be a bit to handle as well, those kinds of meetings, but um, I've found that they're just uh, tremendously successful at starting to develop that trust. And if there was one precondition that I would um, uh, put forward for collaborative projects like this, particularly fundraising projects, that's some way to develop trust. And trust starts with knowledge. So if you know the people that you're working with, um, you know them well, you do some other work together, I think you're much more likely to be able to work together and to find mediative ways to resolve problems that will come up. I had a, a great conversation with Andrea just about the Resolve project, and we had taken different approaches. Resolve had done quite a detailed set of agreements between um, all of the agencies, and we had done a very general agreement between our two agencies. Probably we were able to do that because it was only two agencies. But what that required <laughs> us to do on the other side was to really uh, come up with some resolution methods very clearly and to voice ahead of time that we would mess up, that we would um, kind of trod on each other's territory inevitably, but we'd find ways to forgive each other. And so I think it has to go that far. One of the other things that was mentioned, you know, um, I had a bit of a laugh around uh, development staff, um, you know, putting up barriers because we don't know how we're going to measure our own success in this. And Perhaps that's on us as CEOs to look at how we measure development officer successes and not by individual accomplishments or uh, gift attainment or levels, those kinds of things, but by campaign successes. And that was very much the way we approached this with all our development, development staff from both agencies was if we hit our goal, we'll, we're all successful and that will be our mark uh, for evaluating your role in this campaign. Mm. That's a good point. That's a good point. We, we did much the same thing at Resolve. In terms of uh, structure, though, um, Resolve had a campaign cabinet. They were community members. They were fundraisers. They, they were the, the lead fundraisers. Um, we also had a steering committee, and the steering committee consisted of the executive director and the board chair for each of the five uh, nine partner agencies. And that group met regularly and they really acted as the board for the organization. Um, so there was a lot 
and and we saw very early on we saw collaborations happening outside of the resolve campaign between the partner organizations so for as example at a steering committee meeting one day um one of the the organization that uh, built uh, was building accessible uh units uh was was presenting on their on their project and it, it, it somehow it came up one of the other partners were, were were doing family units and they they when they heard the extent of the accessibility issue there's a there's a, a benchmark you have to have i can't remember what it is off the top of my head but you have to have x percent of uh your units accessible once they heard uh the extent of the problem they uh they took initiative and they increased well beyond what was required the number of accessible units that they would have in their facility uh two other of the partner agencies ended up building side by side and were sharing building admin services so so there was a lot of collaboration that ha- happened outside the fundraising um that really built the leadership and the capacity of the organizations in in multiple ways and that was because we had that steering committee which was the executive director and the board chairs of each of the organizations it's Sharon I I Doug I like your comments about trust that's one of the reasons we called our campaign the trust collective um uh because we wanted trust between the organizations we wanted trust between donors and um and the orgs and and all the gifts coming in from women are unrestricted um which is just a whole other conversation uh for another podcast in terms of where we I'd like to see philanthropy go more um and I think that uh um Andrea your comments about structure you know, what I would like to see more of in the sector, and maybe this is connected to Doug's comment about what's on us as leaders, which I totally agree. Um, we have to lead this way. And it's one of the reasons I sort of uh, gave you the profile of those that chose to join our collective is that um, it, it's easy for me as a community foundation to back a campaign like this, because even investing the money we're investing in making the campaign happen is an investment in our mission. It, it is absolutely capacity building these orgs. We had one of our um, food banks who was part of the group um, inform us that they just decided to start asking every woman donor in their basically at a certain level in their database to join the collective, even if they didn't think they would do it. Because what they started to see was every woman started doubling the size of her gift to the mm-hmm. organization because the size of our campaign was so much more significant than than what their typical ask looks like. And so we're actually seeing sort of those unexpected uh, consequences. Uh, Andrea, you were talking about with results. Mm-hmm. We're actually seeing organizations growing their philanthropy out or their fundraising outside of this campaign because they're in the campaign. And so their donors are seeing them differently. Um, absolutely, uh, their board is seeing it differently and, um, and seeing them differently because they're, these are $100,000 asks they're making. They're, they're, most of them, for most of them, this is the first $100,000 pledge they've ever received from an individual. And, um, and so it really is, uh, the benefits of collaboration go well beyond the, the activity itself, I guess, was the point I wanted to make. And the second point I wanted to make is our role 
in, in what I call the privileged institutions, the ones that do have robust fundraising teams and budgets. And yes, we all, you know, I don't, but most traditional institutions that are fundraising need money. But how can we share our abundance um, with the sector itself? And, and to Kathy's point, how can we be looking at the things we're doing and allow others to leverage to their benefit and that all boats rise? I mean, I know I sound a little Pollyanna about this, but I really believe that if we're going to solve the complex issues, um, we absolutely have to find new ways of doing it. And I think it's shattering um, uh, a lot of the old thinking um, in order to do it. Uh, yeah, and I, so there's a couple things that, that you said that I just want to um, uh, follow up on. And one is, you know, we, we've talked about scarcity mindset and, and uh, abundance. And in in so many of the social change organizations that um, that I've worked with uh, and and just know about, um, I think that notion of of abundance is perhaps more than they can um, uh, handle. And so I really talk about sufficiency. Uh, because that seems a little bit more um, achievable, and but it's that whole notion of exploring money mindset that organizations don't do, and I that this too is a topic for another uh, for another podcast um, that I would love to, to get into another time. But just to put that out there, this this notion of um, intentionally exploring the organization's money mindset and how it impacts leadership is something that I'm starting to explore, and I have um, collaborating with. Somebody, Lisa, who Lisa Watson from Openly, who's working with uh, with Toronto Foundation, um, and th- the other thing that I wanted to talk about was just th- this notion of um, uh, the Toronto Foundation. It is I love that Sharon called it a privileged um, organization because um, it is in this uh, uh, position of privilege. Um, and and what it did was it made it easy for organizations to participate in something. And so I, I think that um, often I've seen um, small organizations that are operating uh, in scarcity, and it's hard for them to to um, self-mobilize and to have someone like a Toronto Foundation come along and say, look, we've got all of these skills and all of this experience and all of this access to donors um, who you might not have access to. Um, we're going to um, share that uh, that intellectual wealth, if you will. And so I, I think, again, to this notion of we as leaders need to be changing uh, how we do things in the sector, and I hope that more leaders will, uh, who are in positions uh, of, of privilege um, will will be able to do that. That because was we awesome, see that Kathy. We, thank you. <clears throat> yeah, it was awesome. And I don't want to, I <clears throat> there's so much more to talk about. I, uh, I'm also sensitive to uh, folks is time. Um, but I, I, these, these additional podcasts that I heard about, one on an unrestricted giving, one on the money mindset. It's nice to sometimes sit back and just listen to, uh, amazing people talk. What a gift to the sector you guys have done today around collaboration. Um, I really want to thank you for that. I got a little worried when Andrea said can be disastrous failures and then said the resolve campaign. Um, but I know that's not what she meant, uh, when she went on to talk about the resolve oh. campaign. <laughs> Well, thank you for segways. clarifying that. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. Um, you know, and the sharing the abundance idea is such an interesting concept. Uh, some jurisdictions like Detroit have had to do that. Uh, when the city went bankrupt, that wasn't an option for the privileged uh, organizations to just sort of turn the other way. 
So there are some case studies for uh, where this stuff works. But uh, that's for another podcast. I want to thank all of you for your observations, your conversation. I can't wait uh, to to have episode uh, 2.0 at this topic or 3 or 7 or 70. Um, uh, so much to think about to unpack. I'll put a lot of it in the show notes. Thank you all. You've been great guests. Kathy, Doug, Sharon, Andrea, I can't wait to have you two back on our podcast. But before we let you go, I want to give each of you a chance to tell us a little bit more about what you're working on, uh, where people might want to reach you, or what's uh, what's your pet peeve. Doug, we're going to start with you. Anything you want our listening audience to know? Well, I guess I, I would uh, make a pitch for the Kelowna General Hospital Foundation uh, since I have the opportunity. <laughs> how you know how untoward, but uh, I'll take the opportunity anyway. Um, I think uh, Kelowna General is one of the kind of unknown and hidden gems, one of the best kept secrets in the country. Um, we uh, just uh, started cardiac surgery here about six years ago, and last year we had the best outcomes in the country, and that's very emblematic of everything that's going on at uh, Kelowna General. It's a uh, it, it's a uh, significant uh, academic health sciences center uh, in one of the most beautiful. Um, areas of the country uh, and growing significantly almost every day. So I would put a pitch out there for any really amazing, dynamic fundraiser who's looking for an immense challenge in one of the most beautiful parts of the world to just pick up the phone and give us a call. Awesome. Boating, <laughs> golfing, year-round sun. It's amazing. Thanks for that, Doug. Andrea, and thanks to everybody. <laughs> thanks, Doug. Andrea, what's your, uh, what's your pitch or what do you want people to hear today? I just hope that people, uh, I, and I'm going to speak to fundraisers, I think that, that the, the, the way that philanthropy is shifting and fundraising needs to shift and is shifting, I think as fundraisers, as our profession, we have a huge opportunity to be a real leader, take a lead role in that, and to, uh, on be behalf of our organizations, but also it's a great opportunity professionally. So I'm just going to throw out a challenge to fundraisers. Open up your thinking. Do things differently. Challenge the status quo. Awesome. Well, of course, if they're hearing this, they already have listened to the podcast. But I'm going to say, <laughs> listen to this podcast. So that's great. Thanks, yeah. Andrea. Sharon, uh, what 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 do you want to stand on a soapbox about? I would. Uh, 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 I love what Andrea had to say, and I would echo it on behalf of leaders of big institutions who have the power and privilege to be collaborators and to really put their money where their mouth is in terms of leadership and to be um, really trying to do things differently when it comes to making a, a more equitable sector in itself. I would also say that um, collaboration, the beautiful thing about collaborating is it leads to more collaborative opportunity. And so I would only just suggest that because we put the Trust Collective piece together here in Toronto, it led to a, a Toronto Foundation having the opportunity to be in a much bigger um, global conversation about gender equality this year. And um, we're going to be the future home of the Global Affairs um, Gender Equality Partnership Fund of $300 million and are backing an, an emerging organization called the Equality Fund, um, led by the Match International Women's Fund. Um, and we are just so proud of them and what they've done and so happy to be behind them and backing them in this work. A much smaller organization compared to us, 
but with the vision and the guts to step into the space. And so I think that I, I want more leaders in the space that have sitting on big endowment funds, whether they are a community foundation or, um, or a big institution, um, you have the opportunity to foster this culture of collaboration and you need to be doing it. Wow. Thanks. And it uh, will pay back. And it will pay back. <laughs> it will. And congratulations on all the hard work that went into getting that, that, uh, that fund set up and, uh, and having that move forward. Such an important, uh, important topic and important issue. So thank you. Um, Thank Kathy, you. you get to close, you get to close out, uh, the show today. Um, uh, you have the biggest, uh, soapbox. So what's up? Awesome. Uh, well, from Sharon's very grand, um, uh, comments there to, uh, to perhaps more of a fundamental, um, comment, I'm really excited to announce, um, some new initiatives. Um, we're launching, uh, the fundraising lab. So the, uh, website is fundraisinglab.ca where we'll be offering online courses and webinars and training. Uh, and because I work with many of those social change organizations that we've been talking about today, I'm hoping that they'll um, come over, see the kind of fundamental training that we can uh, help support them with so that when they have opportunities to participate in these collaborations, they'll have a little bit more um, uh, skills and, and infrastructure build up the, so that they can really um, take advantage of these kinds of opportunities. Thanks, Kathy. I want to thank everyone on the podcast for being such a collaborative group. <laughs> um, it was awesome. <laughs> awesome. Really awesome. With that, a gift of another Brain Trust Philanthropy powered by Vitreo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you'll join us next month when we will be visiting with Eva Friesen, CEO of Calgary Foundation, Sharon Avery, CEO of the Toronto Foundation, Martin Garber Conrad, CEO of the Edmonton Community Foundation, and Mark Bloomberg of Bloomberg Law. Our topic, the rise of the Community Foundation. Community foundations have become power players in philanthropy. How has this happened and what does it mean for the sector? Until then, take care of yourselves and we look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.